Okay, church, good seeing you today. Good to be in the house of the Lord once again, and we are uh, continuing on in our study of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 5 today, and we are looking at verses 17 through verse 26. So let's read that. Let me read that to you guys. Luke chapter 5. Verses 17 through 26. The title of the message today is Jesus Forgives Sins. It cannot be stated enough that Jesus forgives sins. So Luke chapter 5 starting in verse 17. One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up. Pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for your word, God. We come to your word once again on the Lord's day. And Lord, I just pray that that You would just help all of us through the ministry of Your Spirit, God. Help me to, to preach Your Word and help us all to, to have a clear understanding, Lord, and to, and to receive it and to obey it, to apply it to our lives, God. We pray that, that Jesus Christ would be glorified and your, that Your will would be done in each and every one of our lives, Father. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus forgives sins. I could have titled it, Only Jesus Forgives Sins. But what a reminder, uh, just the title, that Jesus is the one who forgives sins. So up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, we're in chapter 5 now. You know, it's really hard when you're going through the Gospels. It's really hard to tell, you know, exactly what is chronological and what is not. Because when you compare the Gospels, sometimes it can be hard to tell. But at this stage in Luke, you know, early on in his ministry, we know this that his popularity is growing. His popularity is beginning to grow. He's been performing these miracles, which creates more and more of a crowd, which the more more of a crowd you have, the more the Word gets around. And so, of course, we know that his miracles, remember we talked about several weeks ago, the better word to use for it would be signs, that these signs were meant. He performed these signs and miracles not just to perform the signs and miracles, but it was all meaning to point people to something greater, which is Himself. The miracles were, were meant to point to Him, to point to Christ. 
So the word is spreading throughout the regions. And really we look at verse 17 just by way of introduction, kind of get the setting here. It says, One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So he was teaching, right? He was teaching. He was teaching. He was preaching. That was his purpose. We know that that was what he came to do. Ultimately, he came to, to die and give his life as a ransom. But when he was on this earth, he was always found teaching and preaching. And so that's what he's doing here. If you look at Mark's Gospel, you don't have to look there, but in Mark's parallel account in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, we can see that he was teaching in Capernaum. That's where he's at. In a house. He's, so he's in a house, in this setting here, teaching in Capernaum. And at this stage in his ministry, church, he was beginning to make enemies. <laughs> Jesus was beginning to make enemies. Um, and you know, that's, uh, that's, that's really kind of hard to, or it's impossible to prevent if you're, if you're in the ministry of any type. And I don't mean like officially in the ministry, how we say it, but just if you're a Christian and you're in the ministry by way of proclaiming truth, you're going to create enemies. No matter how hard we... We don't want to create enemies. We don't want enemies, but that just goes with the territory. But Jesus Christ, obviously, is beginning to make many enemies. We already saw uh, a few weeks back when He was preaching in the synagogue in His hometown. Remember the enemy that cried out with a loud voice? (laughs) One of His enemies? The demon cried out. And... uh, And of course, we know the story. He he told them to be quiet. (laughs) And um, we see him casting out demons. But we're going to see today that he's beginning to make enemies through the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Um, And that's that's who we see here in this verse. It says, On this day he was teaching there in Capernaum in this home, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. So this is our first look at the, at the Pharisees in, in the Gospel of Luke, they will become a normal occurrence. And so the word Pharisee comes from a word that means to separate. They were, they were the separated ones. They prided themselves on being the separated ones in, in terms of their zeal for the Mosaic Law. And the, the, the Pharisees came about in between the Old and New Testament, the intertestamental period. They've actually uh, started out fairly well. Uh, they had good intentions, but and they were they were considered conservative theologians, uh, where you had your your Sadducees were more of your liberal theologians. So they were conser- conservative in the in the fact that they believed in in resurrection and the reality of resurrection, in the reality of, of angels and demons, fallen angels. So they believed these type of things. They even believed in the sovereignty of God. As compared to the, the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. We'll see that as we go throughout the book. That the Pharisees didn't believe in a literal resurrection. That's why they... Or the, or the Sadducees. That's why you guys know the joke, right? That's why they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I know that's an old one. But, uh, <laughs> but the Sadducees, they were more of the, of the wealthy elite priests. And the Sadducees was a bigger group. The the Pharisees, I I don't know the number of the Sadducees, but the Pharisees, Josephus estimated probably around 6,000 of them, much smaller group than the 
the Pharisees, yeah, much smaller group than the Sadducees. But both of these groups, along with a few other groups, make up what, what, we, what we see called the Sanhedrin. Or it may be entitled different times in different English translations, the Council. The rulers of Israel. The, the rulers, the highest ruling body and court of justice among the Jewish people during this time. That was the Sanhedrin, or the Council. And so the, the Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin. But it was their zeal. It was their zeal for the law that led them to to really to begin to focus on rituals. Everything was external with the Pharisees. And and we'll see that more and more as we go throughout the Gospel. Um, That these men, they they looked on the outside. That's why Jesus would would say stuff like, you whitewashed tombs. You're all clean on the outside, but inside you're you're like dead men's bones. Can you imagine opening a tomb up? That's what he's saying. The casket's all shiny. That's the way you Pharisees are. That's the language he would use. But then it, what, what they began to do, and, and, and during the New Testament time especially, they start elevating their traditions over the law. So when you would see Jesus encounter these Pharisees and rebuke them for their teachings, He wasn't rebuking the Mosaic Law. He was rebuking their traditions. Right? I mean, He is the... He is the Word made flesh. So he wasn't, he wasn't rebuking God's Word. He was rebuking their traditions. But I think the worst thing about them, a title that he had for them many times, where they were hypocrites. That's about the worst thing that can be said about us, about anybody. Not to say, guys, that none of us escape being hypocritical at times in our lives. But these men were hypocrites. That means they were play actors. It was total show. It was total hypocrisy. Because there were times when Jesus, I don't know if it's in Luke's Gospel, but there were times, I remember one time in particular, I don't remember which Gospel it said it in, but He told the crowd, hey, do what they say, just don't do what they uh, do. So there were times they taught truth. A lot of things they said were true. And then it says, not only the Pharisees were here, but the teachers of the law, or the scribes. Teachers of the law, scribes, they were, um, sometimes they were called lawyers. Um, like when the, the, when the rich young, I don't remember which account it was, the lawyer, one, one of his accounts, the lawyer questioned Jesus, how can I have eternal life? But they were, they were professional scholars specializing in the interpretation and application of the law. Most scribes were Pharisees, but not all. You didn't have to be a Pharisee to be a scribe, but... Um, Again, but these men, these, these groups, they would, they would elevate tradition above Scripture. Turn over to Matthew 15, 1-9. You can see an ex- a clear example of, of the way they do this. And this is what really led Jesus so many times to rebuke these men. As He does here in Matthew 15, 1-9. This is just an example of how they elevate tradition above Scripture. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And He answered them and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God says, Honor your father and your mother. Right? That's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. 
But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So that so he's just saying what that what that context is. You know, just let's just apply it to our lives. Let's say, you know, because we're to honor our father and mother. That's throughout their whole life. We obey them. We obey them when we're in their home. But we honor them throughout our whole life. Let's just say that my parents were in need somehow, maybe financially, and I have a way to help them. But I say, no, I know you're, I know you're in need, mom and dad. But this money I have is reserved for God. What a hypocrite! I'm breaking the fifth commandment. Do you see that? That's what they're doing. You can just see their haughtiness. And Jesus calls them out for it. He said, no, this is just your tradition. You're breaking the fifth commandment of God by not honoring your parents. You're to take, we're to take care of our parents to honor our parents. That's just an example of how they would elevate their tradition above Scripture itself. And so he was going to be on a constant collision course with these hypocrites. As we go throughout the Gospel of Luke and looking at other parallel accounts, in the Gospels. It's just every time we turn around, he's and, and, you, and we'll see, guys, many times He will do it intentionally. He will do it intentionally, especially on the Sabbath. Because He wants to, he wants to, to reveal to the people who these hypocrites are and what the truth is. And, and obviously, uh, His continual confrontation with these, with these Pharisees and the leaders of Israel... In God's providence is what eventually put him on the cross. Um, and so it says they came in verse 17. The, these Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. I didn't look at the distances of some of these places from Capernaum, but Jerusalem, I looked it up, and it's 70 to, 7, 70 to 75 miles away from Jerusalem to Capernaum. And these Pharisees came all that way. They were, they were concerned. They were curious. But more so than that, they were jealous. These men were jealous, as we'll see. They were jealous of Jesus. He was beginning to draw big crowds. And so they had to come check and see what was going on. And so this is the setting. Jesus is doing His thing. He's teaching the Word of God. And it says at the end of verse 17, interesting phrase there, that the power of the Lord was present for Him to perform healing. It's really that conversation we've been having on Wednesday night. That's an interesting phrase. The power of the Lord was present to perform healing. The power of the Lord was always present with Him. You know, it's that, it's that, it's that mystery. You know, because He's truly man, yet He's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we know uh, He's also truly God. But yet He laid aside privileges of His deity. But either way, the power of the Lord is with Him to perform healing what it says here in the text, both the power and the authority to, to, to forgive sins and to heal both physically, but even more importantly, to heal the soul. So that's what we see here, guys. So if you have your outline, if you want to follow along, we're going to look at four things today. The first one is in verses 18 and 20, and we're going to see the approach, the approach of the five. 
the approach of the five. In verse 18, And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. Again, he's teaching in a house in Capernaum. And why do I, why do I say the approach of the five? Well, over in Mark's Gospel, he makes it clear that there are four men carrying their friend. So there's five of them. There's, there's four men carrying their friend to getting in front of Jesus. That's their whole point. And so we're going to see their approach. The approach of the five and how we can apply that to our life. It says this man was paralyzed. If you remember last week, he healed the leper. So a little bit of what's different between this is this man was paralyzed, but he was not unclean. Okay, Being a leper made you unclean. This man was not unclean, which mean, means he was not removed. He was not quarantined from the, from the community. He wasn't banished from the community like the leper, but still... Being paralyzed? It doesn't say whether he was paralyzed from birth, more than likely, but we don't know that. But there was stigma that came with, if you were born with a, with a disease, with an illness, it was, it was stigmatized. In other words, many thought this, this would have been punishment for this man because he was paralyzed. We can see that in John, if you want to jot this down, in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay? He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. You hear that? So they're thinking, this man, if he's born blind, it must have been from sin. Either his sin or or his parents' sin. And if you go on to read, uh, Jesus corrects them. He says, neither It says that he was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed. Now, ultimately, we know all all blindness and all sickness is a result of sin coming into the world. But it's not always a result of a certain person's sin. That's what he's saying. Two things that we see that are certain here in this text in Luke that we can see, that we can know for certain, is first of all about these men. They love their friend. These men love their friend. We know that for certain. And they had obviously heard about Jesus because they're trying to get their friend to Jesus because they love Him. And they had heard the stories of how this is a miracle worker. And so that's what we have here. It's a beautiful picture of these these four men taking their friend to Him, taking their friend to Jesus. You know, that's the most loving thing that they could do is take their friend to Jesus Christ. That's the most loving thing you and I can do, is it not? To take our friends to Jesus. Take our family to Jesus. How do we do that? We, we take them to Jesus by taking them to the Word of God. It's just a beautiful thing. Jamie's taking our sister. I, I just, it just blesses my heart that he's taking her to Jesus. He's taking her to Jesus. He's taking her to Jesus through the Word of God. And it's a beautiful thing. That's how we love people, guys. That's the greatest way we can demonstrate love for not only our friends and family, but even for strangers. Take them to Jesus. And so, in verse 19, uh, it says, But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Man, can you imagine being there <laughs> that day? But, but what we see here in verse 19, we see this, the crowd 
is preventing them getting in. Again, like usual, Jesus is speaking. He's, he's becoming, uh, you could say, famous. The word's spreading and the crowds grow. And so by this time, uh, we don't know how far they traveled. It doesn't tell us. But we know that that's, you know, these four men carrying their friend. Their heart must have sunk when they saw this crowd and they were prevented from getting. The very reason they came was to, to get him in front of Jesus. And they were, um, but they were determined, guys. That's, that's the first thing we see about the approach, the approach of the five. You see their determination? They're going to get their friend to Jesus because they know, much like the leper, not only are they determined, but there's some desperation here. If their friend is going to be healed, it's going to be if we can get him to that man. They're demonstrating their great faith. And, and we're going to know that because Jesus commends their faith here in just a few moments. And their, their actions are demonstrating their great faith. And as Christians, it's no different with us. How do we demonstrate our faith? Right? I can say to you, you can say to me, I believe in Jesus Christ, but it's, it's ultimately our, our actions, right? James would say our works demonstrate our faith. And so that's what, that's what we can see here. This great demonstration of faith that they would not be denied as we go on, as we read this. Not finding any way to bring Him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let Him down through the, through the tiles. This probably would have been a... Um, if we know anything about the houses during that time, they always had these flat roofs. They would hang out up on the, on the roofs. It's not like our homes, right? They had these flat roofs. So there was probably an outside staircase attached to the wall with these homes. There had to have been something for them to get up on the roof. And we have to remember, guys, that this, this story, if we think about our houses nowadays, this story would be hard to believe. It really would. But these were, again, flat roofs with tiles. Um, they're not like our homes. They're, they're not steep roofs. Especially, you guys have seen our house. <laughs> this story couldn't happen on our house. Okay, They would need a miracle to get on our house. <laughs> Uh, our house is really steep. I feel sorry for the roofers that come to our house. We've had our roof placed twice, and it's a, it's a very steep roof. Um, so it's nothing like that. These were flat roofs. Also, it wasn't like for them, to, for them to make a hole in the roof, guys. It wasn't like modern homes. Think of, a, think of a firefighter, right? Our oldest son's a firefighter, and we've had discussions about how they, you know, you have these house fires, and they have to get out the chainsaw, and you'll see them cutting a hole in the roof. Really allowing the smoke and the gases to, to release. It was nothing like that. It was a matter of, of, of moving some tiles out of the way. And I even read like maybe some houses would have not only tiles, but, but tree branches and different things. So they had to move some of these things out of the way. And so it was very feasible to do, to do this. Um, but just picture this. They probably had ropes. Uh, the picture on front of the, in front of the bulletin that Trish found... May have, been, may have been something like that. Probably ropes on four corners of this, of this stretcher, this, this, some kind of blanket or bed, and they just attached the ropes and they lowered Him down in front of Jesus during His teaching. It says, into the middle of the crowd. They let Him down through the tiles with His stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. This crowd was listening to Christ teach. 
And just, and just picture it in your mind. You know, they saw, saw some, maybe some, some dust falling from the, from the ceiling as Jesus is teaching. Maybe you're hearing some noise and then all of a sudden there's a hole starting to form and you can see daylight coming in. You're like, what in the world is going on? And then a man comes down into the middle of the crowd. There's never a dull moment when Jesus is teaching, it seems like. You know, I was just thinking of that just to this point where we're at in the gospel. When he was teaching in the synagogue, again, he's preaching, he's teaching, and a demon cries out and screams out, Leave us alone! And, and, um, and then we saw a few weeks ago, it wasn't when he was teaching, but right after he got done teaching. That he told his disciples, he told Peter, hey, cast your net over here. And they caught so many fish that both boats were sinking. And then today we see a man is lowered through the roof. Probably not many people falling asleep during his teaching. If you fell asleep during the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ, yeah, you were definitely dead in your sins. Uh, but never a dull moment. But, but we see their approach, guys. Their approach to Jesus is one of determination. They are determined to get their friend at any cost to Jesus because they have faith that He can heal him. Beloved, are you determined to be with Him? Are you determined? as His child. Are you determined to be with Him? The one who has forgiven your sins. Are you really determined? It takes discipline. Does it not take discipline to spend time with the Lord? Because we have so many things in our life, good things, but busy things that can just crowd out your entire day and you're, to where you're not spending time with the Lord. Are you determined to make time? To make time. To make it a priority in your schedule. Whenever that is. To spend time with Christ. You know, so many are zealous for things in this life. I would say that don't matter in the long run. They're, they're important. They have their place. Even, they even have their place in our life for survival and for enjoyment and recreation. But in comparison, in comparison to, our, to our spiritual life, they're not, they're not near as high on the priority list. But so many people are zealous for these things. It could be money. Right? I mean, we have to have money to survive, but so many people are driven by money. Scripture warns not to be driven by the love of money. So many people are zealous for their jobs, for their careers, for hobbies. These things aren't bad. God provides these things. But what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek Jesus first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added. All these things will be added. But so many people are zealous for these things, but not for their soul. I've mentioned this quote, I think, just here not long ago, but I say it again because it's so true. It's not even, I don't even think he meant it to say it as being funny. It's a little humorous, but it's so true. Where Spurgeon said, most people care more about their cats and dogs than they do their soul. How many people invest hundreds and even thousands of dollars and all the time into their pets? That's not a bad thing. But I'm talking about the people who neglect their soul. They, they care more about their animals than they do their own soul. Beloved, what are you zealous for? You know, what's sad is many professing Christians are zealous for all these things to the neglect of their spiritual life. 
No, we need to be determined. Beloved, we need to have the attitude, right? I have to be with my Savior. It is my priority in life. I have to be with Him. I don't know about you guys, but the longer I'm a Christian, guys, and the more I try to live for Christ, the more I realize I have to be with Him. I have to be with Him on a regular basis. Because my life can get so... uh, just going in a wrong direction, just mentally, and just believing... Uh, just lies that, that, that the enemy... It's, it's a warfare. I have to be with Jesus to clear my mind, to confess my sin, to be in His Word, to be near Him. Not only do I have to be with my Savior, actually, well, i got to, right? My Oklahoma. i got to be with my Savior. But not only that, i got to tell my loved ones. Are you determined? Not only to be with Christ, but are you determined like these men to take others that you care to him, no matter what the cost, right? And maybe you know, maybe there's, a, maybe maybe you have somebody in your mind that that you just, you, oh, you're burdened. I have to tell this person about Christ, but you know they wouldn't. You know you couldn't even have a conversation with them. Or maybe they're, you know, maybe they live far away, but you know if you if you tried to talk to them on the phone, they would just they would cut you off. You know what you could do? Write them a letter. Write them a letter. I did that many, many years ago with like a lot of people in my family and, and different friends. I just wrote a letter. Kind of like wrote my testimony with the gospel. I was like, they can argue with a letter. You know, I'm not there to, for them to argue with. But so there's there's so many ways that we can we can take people to Christ, so to speak, to his word, um, if we're truly determined to do that. But that's what we see. These men are determined. In verse 20. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. That can be, that can be kind of odd at first, right? It's like, it's like what? His, his sins are forgiven because of their faith? Beloved, Jesus is talking about His faith as well. When He says seeing their faith, He meant all five of them. Okay, This is one of those times that we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We know that God only forgives those who have faith. right? So obviously the man is included with them. He sees their faith. The, the one paralyzed had faith in Christ. And he said, he said, friend, your sins are forgiving, are forgiven you. There's no record of them saying anything. Now it doesn't mean they didn't, it's just not recorded. There's no, there's no record of them saying anything. But what we do see here is Jesus recognizing their faith. He's recognizing their faith. And he's addressing the man's greatest need. That's what I love about this. He is addressing right from the very start the man's greatest need, which is his soul. He's forgiven his sins. You see, it doesn't matter how sick you are. It doesn't matter how sick a person is. That's not your greatest need. You can be deathly sick, but your greatest need is forgiveness of sins, right? That's like with our family member. We all know people. We've been there. You can be deathly sick. I think I mentioned this last week. But you can be, you can be sick and unclean with leprosy. But if your sins are forgiven, you're the most blessed man around. You can be the most healthiest person around. You can be the healthiest person, strongest person, everything going for you physically. But if you die in your sins and your sins aren't forgiven, you're to be most pitied. 
So it doesn't matter how sick you and I are. Our greatest need is always forgiveness of sins. And that's what Jesus addressed. Jesus knew these men, because He knows man, He knew these men were desperate to get to Him. These men, their approach... Beloved, it's like, it's, it's Matthew 11, verse 12. Just jot that down. It's that, that's the verse where Jesus talks about the, the people taking the kingdom of heaven by force. Like the book we've been going through. Taking the kingdom of heaven by force. This needs to be our approach. It's just being intentional, right? These men are being intentional to get their friend to Jesus Christ. You and I need to be intentional in the Christian life. Everything we do, right? We need to be intentional. We need to take the kingdom of heaven by force in our prayer life. If you're not intentional, guess what? It's not going to happen. You're not going to just stumble into a life that pleases God. You have to be intentional. That's what it means to the violent take it by force. Being intentional. You're not just going to accidentally be faithful in your, in your, uh, in your Bible reading. Well, yeah, you know, I just kind of read through my Bible this year just on accident. No, you won't. You're not going to. Whatever Bible reading plan you have, you must be intentional. There will be days when it's easy. There will be days when you you have to be disciplined. We have to be intentional, right? In evangelism, it's not just going to happen. I don't care whether it's, you know, the whole argument of um, do you have to have a relationship with somebody to share the gospel with them? Well, absolutely not. You don't have to. But whether it's with somebody that you have a relationship with or whether it's a complete stranger, you have to be intentional either way. It's confrontational either way. The Gospel is confrontational. And we have to be intentional. These men were intentional. And Jesus sees it. He sees their desperation. And so again, we see Jesus demonstrated who He is. We have seen His power over demons, His power over sickness, His power over creation and the fish and the water. And now we see Him telling a a young man that your sins are forgiven. He is demonstrating who He is, beloved. And point number one, we see the approach of these men. And Jesus rewards their approach. He sees their great faith. Secondly, we're going to see we go from the positive to the negative, we're going to see the arrogant attempt of His foes. The arrogant attempt of His foes. I have verse 17 and 21, both. 17 we already looked at, just introducing who the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are. But we see it in verse 21. The arrogant attempt of His foes. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying... Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, they were correct in one thing they said here. That only God alone can forgive sins. They were correct. You see, some of their theology was actually good. And so they were correct here. And of course, when when it talks about only God can forgive sins, we know the type of forgiveness we're talking about, right? It's not like me forgiving my wife for sinning against me. No, we're talking about only God has the authority and the power to declare a person justified and not condemned before God, right? That's the forgiveness it's talking about. Only God can do that, and so they're correct. But what are they attempting? Their arrogant attempt. Well, first of all, just know how arrogant they are. 
The Pharisees are prideful, self-righteous. We will see that as we continue to go out the Gospel of Luke. They are the epitome of self-righteous, arrogant men. And so what are they attempting here? Well, they're attempting to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Not just to accuse Him, they're attempting to catch Him in blasphemy. Why? Because blasphemy was punishable by death in the law of Moses. In the law, not their tradition. You can see that in Leviticus 24.16. That if you're guilty of blasphemy, you're to be put to death. That's why they want Him to be guilty of blasphemy. That's why in the Gospels you'll, you'll hear Jesus say, hey, why, why are you trying to stone me to death? Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's in John 10, I believe. In John 8. They're accusing Him of blasphemy. There's three, three different ways you could blaspheme God. One is you could speak evil of God's law. That's one way you could blaspheme God. Two, you could speak evil of God. And thirdly, the most severe form is you could claim to be God. And that's exactly what He's doing. He is claiming to be God. And so they're accusing Him of blasphemy. Now, obviously, if he, if he wasn't who He said He was, He would be guilty of blasphemy. But, beloved, think about this. What He had been doing in His ministry, nothing like this had ever happened before. These weren't normal things that happened. These, these signs and these miracles. The power over demons. This was something new that had come on the scene. The miracle of the catch of the fish. All of the healings that He had performed publicly for all to see. All these signs. This stuff had never been ha- never happened before. And it was all meant, again, what are the signs meant to do? To demonstrate who He is. That He is truly the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the God in the flesh. You know, He even told the Pharisees in John chapter 10 that even if you don't believe My words, believe the works that I perform. Beloved, these men were not just curious. They were hostile and they were jealous. And they were determined to destroy Him. Matter of fact, as we continue on in the the story in the Gospels, you'll see phrases like that. From this point on, they were attempting to destroy Him. Which is why ultimately, what did they say at the end? When Pilate said, hey, which one do you want me to release? This murderer? Barabbas? Or Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify Him! Because that was their intention all along. They hated Him. In Mark 15, verse 10, towards the end here, in Mark's Gospel, it says, For He, Jesus, was aware that the chief priests had handed Him over because of envy. You see, they were envious of Him. They were jealous of Him. They despised Him. Pride always leads to envy and jealousy. It's hard to be envious and jealous when you're humble. Truly humble. But these men were prideful. And so, beloved God, James tells us, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And that's what we have. That's this continual opposition to the Pharisees. Because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is always going to oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. That's why we see His approach is always so different with the common people. 
than with the religious leaders. The religious leaders are the ones that He's always given these scathing rebukes because of their pride. So this is the arrogant attempt of His foes. Third, we'll see the authority to forgive. The authority to forgive. His authority to forgive. Verses 22 through 24. In verse 22, but Jesus, aware of the reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Aware of the reasonings. You know what this means, beloved? It's really simple. He knew their thoughts, he knew what they were thinking. And John 2, verse 25, he himself, the Bible says, knew what was in man. He didn't have to be told what was in man because he knows what's in man. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in our thoughts. Revelation 2, verse 23, Jesus says, I am He who searches minds and hearts. Who is the only one who can search minds and hearts? God alone. I think it's in it's either 1st or 2nd Chronicles, chapter 28, verse 9. It says, the Lord searches our hearts and minds. This is God in the flesh. In in Matthew's account of this story, Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Wow, can you imagine standing before the Son of God and Him asking you that question? Wow. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? You know, one of the most foolish things we can try to do is to hide anything from God. (laughs) To hide anything from Christ. I think, I think the fact that God knows our thoughts, that Christ knows our thoughts, is a comfort to believers. I really do. Now for an unbeliever, for a hypocrite, it should terrify you. Because you can't escape. But for a believer, beloved, I think it should be a comfort to us. Let me, let me try to explain why I think that. Let's just say you, you say something or you do something. Maybe foolish. You know, I think of maybe just in our day, maybe social media, you post something, you know. And it was just like, maybe not the smartest thing. Or you do something. It wasn't very smart. Um, you know, it's sinful just because of how foolish maybe it was. But your motive was good. You just didn't go about it the right way. I, because I found comfort in that, of knowing that, um, you know, these people may think that I meant this, but I know that at least God knows my motive and why I was saying what I said or did what I did. And in that regard, it can be a comfort because, because you, may, you may do something or say something that appears a certain way. And yes, maybe it is sinful. And you have to confess before God. But He knows everything that goes into account. He knows your motive. But see, other people, they may cast you off and dismiss you because you said something or you did something. Because all they see is, yeah, he sinned and I can't believe he did that or said that. When God knows the whole story. It reminds me of Peter. Lord, you know I love you. It's that, it's that principle that I'm trying to say. Even when we fail as Christians, we go to the Lord and, oh Lord, you know I love you. He knows you love Him, guys. He knows you're going to fail. He knows our motives. And even if our motives aren't right, what do we do? We confess it and repent. But He knows, he knows how weak and sometimes just stupid we are. That we do things if I could just take that back. If I could just take back my words. So yes, I sin, but 
But God knows that that my motive wasn't maybe wasn't as bad as it appeared to be. So I think it's, it can be a comfort to believers. But if you're an unbeliever, the fact that God knows your heart should cause you to run to Christ with all your heart and soul for forgiveness. And, and here's the question. Really, the, the theme of the whole passage is in verse 23, 24. Which is easier, he says, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? Which is easier? Well, first of all, guys, both are impossible for a mere man, right? For somebody who's just a man to forgive sins, that's impossible because only God can forgive sin. For somebody who's just a man to tell a man who's paralyzed to say, get up and walk, that's impossible as well. So both are impossible for somebody who's just a man. But what's going on here, guys, is he is repeating their thoughts back to them. I know what you're thinking. That's what he's saying. I know what you're thinking. On one hand, yeah, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because I can say your sins are forgiven and guess what? You can't really prove whether they are or not. Because it's in the invisible realm. But to say get up and walk, that proof is observable to all if he doesn't get up and walk that I'm a fraud. So I know what you're thinking. Can you imagine sitting there thinking something? Having a man stand before you and him repeating your thoughts back to you? That would get my attention. That I might want to listen to this man. I might want to tone down my pride. <laughs> but what does he say in verse 24? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. With a word, here it is again guys, with a word, he told the man, get up. Pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up. With a word, Jesus demonstrated once again his power over sickness, but his authority to forgive sin. With a word, he demonstrated both. Which is easier? I'll tell, if I can do one, I can do the other. And with a word, he demonstrated his power. He demonstrated that yes, I do have the authority to forgive sin, which only God can do. So what's he saying to these men? I'm God. That's what he's declaring to them. And look at the look at the title he uses of himself. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Did you know that that was his favorite phrase to identify himself with? We're going to see it over and over and over. I forgot to write down how many times it's used to describe Christ and how many times he uses it. He uses it more than any other to describe himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. What is so significant about that, guys? His favorite title of himself? Well, some may think, well, it just, it just means he's revealing his humanity. And it is doing that. That is one meaning of it. When he, when, he, when he calls himself the Son of Man, when he's referred to in the Scriptures as the Son of Man, it is revealing his humanity. Right? That he was, as the prophet Isaiah said, he is a man of sorrows. He's truly 100% man. He's, he was born of a woman. One of a virgin. So yes, he's man. 
So it's referring to his humiliation, right? That he, that he came, as Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself, he put on human flesh. Oh, but it also reveals his deity. Flip over to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7, or I mean, verses 13 and 14. And beloved, this is what the Pharisees, when he revealed, when he called himself the Son of Man, they knew he was referring to this passage. Again, it would have been blasphemy to them. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days here is God the Father. And was presented before Him. And to Him, this is the Son of Man, to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might what? Serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the Son of Man, in one sense, reveals His humanity, but when He uses the title the Son of Man, it reveals His deity as well. This is His exaltation. See, Jesus is also referred to the Son of David. He's referred to as the Son of Abraham. But as the Son of Man... Another, another thing he's saying by calling himself the Son of Man, referring to himself as the Son of Man, it, it, that he's not just the Savior of the Jews, of Israel being the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, but he's the Son of Man. He's the Savior of the world. And then back to Daniel 7, as the Son of Man, look at these words. He's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Beloved, why is He given a kingdom? Because He's a king. That's what He says, right? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. With a kingdom comes a king. With a king comes authority. So this Son of Man language, this is why He uses it to describe Himself. With this very short phrase of, of referring to Himself as the Son of Man, He is saying, I am... Fully God and fully man, I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I am the Savior of the world, not just the Jews. The Son of Man. Can you see the significance of that phrase now? I am man. You see this lady over here? I was born (laughs) of a woman. I'm truly man. I came to die as a substitute for mankind. But make no mistake about it. I have a kingdom. And I am the king. And I am the Lord. And I'm not just the son of David and the son of Abraham, but the son of man. Again, what's Luke's emphasis? That he's the savior of the world. This is the son of God. Again, they knew what he, when he described himself as the son of man, in their minds they're thinking of Daniel. This is blasphemy. And so yes, only God can forgive sins to their point, to their statement, and that is exactly who He's claiming to be. He can't make it any more clear to these men. 
And then last, let's see their astonishment of God's glory. The, the people are astonished at God's glory. Verses 25 and 26, really in closing. Immediately he got up before them, the man, immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Again, complete and instant healing. Amen? Complete. It's always complete. It's always instant. You know, there's one thing to see this man healed. And I'm thinking of the Pharisees. Really, really everybody there? But think of the Pharisees and their, and their attempts to accuse him of blasphemy. It's one thing to see this man healed. I mean, that should be enough, right? He said these signs, if you don't believe me, believe the signs. Believe the works. But to hear Christ say, first of all, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then to hear, for these Pharisees, to hear Him repeat their thoughts back to them. And then to say, get up and walk. Can you see how these men are without excuse? I mean, He cannot be any more clear. And then on top of it, He says, I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the one who stands before you. They are without excuse. That's why His rebukes to them are so severe. But it says fear and astonishment was the reaction of the people. Fear and astonishment. Beloved, I, I think that this man went home, it says he went home glorifying God. Yes, because he was healed, but I think even more so because his sins were forgiven. If his sins were forgiven, beloved, think, think of everything that goes into that. Jesus knew where he was spiritually. He knew this man was desperate, not just for healing, but he knew he was a wretch. He knew he was a sinner. Beloved, Jesus saved sinners for the glory of God. Always in the Scriptures. Yes, we benefit from it, but God will receive glory for all eternity. As the angels in heaven and the church worships Him for all eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We will glorify God for the salvation of sinners, beloved. Let me ask you a question. Do you stand astonished sitting here today that you're forgiven? Do you stand astonished when you think about who you are? Or do we take it for granted? You see, that's what will keep a Christian living a... I don't have a word written down. Living a, 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 a Christian life chasing after Christ. Yes, you fall, but you get back up. You can't be denied. I've got to be with Christ. I want to obey Christ. I want to live a life pleasing to Christ. It's that, it's that, that you daily stand astonished that He has forgiven you. He has forgiven me for my sin. Do you stand astonished that, wow, He can use you? in the forgiveness of sins in other people's lives, that's, that's almost as astonishing as the fact that I'm forgiven. That He would turn around and use me. And this is nothing new that He's a God of forgiveness. This is nothing new. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17 says, You are a God of forgiveness. He's a Savior. You see, the other false gods, which they're, just, they're false, they don't exist, they're not saviors. Only our God is a Savior. 
Psalm 65 verse 3, As for transgressions, you forgive them. And who of us are not guilty of transgressions, right? Transgressing the law of God. Every single one of them. But he says, you forgive them. Psalm 86 verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Do you know God is ready to forgive sinners? And abundant and loving kindness to who? All who call upon you. Right? If you don't know Christ, what does the Scripture say? Call upon His name. Repent of your sin. Repent and believe the Gospel. The verse that I had Carl read earlier, right? Luke's account that we will see at the very end of this book of the Great Commission. It tells us the message that is to be preached. That that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name. That's what we do, right? That's what the church does. We tell the world to repent and to believe in Christ and your sins can be forgiven. It's really the theme of the whole Bible. I mean, what's the Bible about? Somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I've read that book, I've read the Bible, and it's, not, it's written by men. Just ask them, okay, what's it about? You know what the Bible's about? Death and sin came into the world in the Old Testament and God made a promise that He would destroy it and then He would send the Savior, and the New Testament tells us how it happened. Jesus came, and forgiveness of sins is available for all who call upon Him. Acts 10, verse 43, Peter preaches to the Gentiles, of Him, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through His name, listen to this promise, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. That's why we can know this paralytic. He believed in Him. That's why his sins were forgiven. He believed in Christ. Does God still heal? Absolutely. When He chooses to. He still heals people physically. But guess what? We die. That's why Jesus forgives sins. That's our greatest need, guys. Our greatest need is always forgiveness of sins. Your friends and your family and people in this world, their greatest need is forgiveness of sins. And He's given us the message to preach that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins that's found only in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Father, we thank You that that He is truly and fully man. He can sympathize with our weakness, tempted in all points as you and I, yet without sin. He is our example to live, to trust in You, to trust in Your Spirit. But Father, He's also God. He is our great and mighty warrior who has defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death and hell. He has the authority to forgive sins. He bore the wrath that was reserved for us on the cross. Only God could do that. And we thank You, Father, for our Savior. We thank You that He is the Savior of the world and not just a certain group of people, but the Savior of all those who will call on His name, God. We love You and we praise You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.